We're coming up to that time of year, and uh, I wanted to share with you this morning a message about the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I posed it in terms of a question, because it's a question that many people today ask. And even some who would claim to be Christians are altering their viewpoint because we live in an age of acceptance and tolerance, uh, which kind of leads in some respects to mediocrity and uh, a lack of boldness in proclaiming the blood of Christ as the means of forgiveness of our sin. And so people today ask, why would a loving God require a blood sacrifice to forgive sin? Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just simply forgive people just for the asking? Especially, Why would he require the death of his only son by Roman execution on a cross as a contingency for forgiveness and salvation? That is a horrific, cruel, horrible kind of death. What kind of God is it that would allow his son to be nailed to a cross and killed by the the Roman government and the resisting uh, Jewish theocracy because of a need to forgive sin. What is going on in that situation? And I want to try to answer that question for you this morning in, in several ways because the atonement is uh, like... Uh, Many layers. Uh, you you look at it from one perspective and you see one thing, and then you step aside and look at another perspective and you see something else. And uh, there's almost no end to exploring the the richness and the meaning of the atonement. But I begin by saying that it is rooted in the character of God and the nature of his covenants. The story of redemption of the lost human race is the greatest epic story in human history. It is the passionate unfolding of God's great love for his ruined creation and his plan to restore the grandeur of the human race. By the way, there is no book in the Bible that's abbreviated F-O-R. It's my fat finger that kept hitting the F instead of the C. That's 1 Corinthians uh, 15.45. So if you ever see the word for as a scripture reference, it's not. It's uh, Corinthians. I don't know what happened. It happened all through you, and I thought I got them all, but anyway, I didn't. You know, I was thinking about some of the great epic tales. I was thinking about Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. Do you remember reading that in school? And um, I was thinking about Dante's Inferno, and then I was thinking about Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, and uh, C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. 
I even thought about Star Trek. <laughs> and uh, I was thinking of some of the great epic stories that have been written, uh, you know, Ben-Hur uh, uh, and whatever, whether it was in film or writing or drama, uh, some of the great uh, dramatic uh gripping kinds of stories about heroes and uh, kind of winning the day. And there is no epic story. There is no drama that surpasses the drama of God's love in pursuing a lost human race. I wish I had time this morning to really go into this first point in great depth. Because it is absolutely marvelous in the parallels and in the symmetry that God has woven into Scripture. As in Genesis, the Scripture says that He created a man and a woman and He placed them in a garden. Adam and Eve. And He called their name humankind or mankind. And as he placed them there, he created this marvelous paradise, this gorgeous place that had everything they could possibly want or need. It starts out like many epic stories in, in this beautiful circumstance where everything is right. And then the villain enters the scene. And things begin to go wrong. And suddenly, uh, they're plunged into a great crisis. And there needs to appear on the horizon someone to save them from the inevitable fate. God spoke to them and said, Everything here is yours. I made the whole world for you. I want you to subdue it. I want you to multiply and fill it. I, I want you to have dominion over it. This is your world. I made it all for you. I made every animal for your pleasure. I, I, I made every green thing for your food. I made all the fruits. I've given you everything you could possibly want. I've given you this gorgeous paradise. And I'm going to come and spend time with you every day. And we're going to walk together and explore together and, and, and I'm going to tell you about my creation and you can tell me about your heart and we're going to have this beautiful fellowship between the Creator and the created. It's going to be wonderful. There's only one thing. There's a tree called the knowledge of good and evil. And... That's the only thing I'm withholding from you. Don't eat from that tree. And we know how that story went as Satan came on the scene disguised as a beautiful serpent. Not the ugly hissing things that we see today, but something quite beautiful and, and attractive. And he beguiled them and wooed them to the tree and offered them the fruit. And he challenged the character of God by saying, God really doesn't have your interest at heart. 
You could be much happier if you could run your own life. He's holding back from you. He, he, he wants to keep things from you. And if you just eat this fruit, oh, wow, you can, you can be like him. You can, you can run your own show. You can do whatever you want to do. And the scripture says that Eve looked at that and Adam undoubtedly was there with her. And they contemplated that tree and noticed that it was beautiful to behold the fruit. Uh, It was desirable to make them wise. They could eat that and they could be like God. And so they reached out and plucked a fruit, and Eve took a bite, and she gave it to her husband, and he took a bite. And all of a sudden, they knew good and evil. Primarily, they knew evil. And they realized that something had happened. They no longer felt right with each other. They no longer felt right knowing that God was going to come later in the day to visit with them. And they tried to figure out what they could do and they, they sewed fig leaves and, and uh, covered themselves up and they hid in, in the bushes. And soon they heard the feet of him walking in the garden. And a voice calling out, Adam, where are you? A broken-hearted God seeking a lost humanity. Grieving over the choice and knowing that they had sinned. And he had told them, And the day that you eat of that, you will die. They didn't realize what that meant. In fact, they didn't know what death was. There had never been any. But it meant separation from God. It meant being void of His Spirit and of His presence. And they found themselves all alone on a planet that was no longer friendly to them. God removed them from the garden, sealed the gate, put a flaming angel there to guard the way lest they come back and try to fix things themselves. And said to them, from this day forward, you will have to figure out how to live. And the ground is not going to yield this beautiful fruit. It's going to be tough. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to labor to figure out how to live until the day you die. They died spiritually in that moment. And then as they began to have children, their children were born with the infection. The infection of sin. And the infection spread. But the heart of God was never far from them. As one way after another, he reached out 
to love them, to point to them the way. Things got so bad at one point that he had to destroy the whole planet and start over. But he didn't destroy everyone. He saved Noah and his family in an ark that survived the floods. And he started over. And yet they went astray again. And then he found a man by the name of Abram, whom he called out. And Abram listened to the voice of God and began to follow him. And God made a covenant with him, a commitment. And Abraham believed God. And the scripture says that God counted it to him for righteousness. But all this time, Satan was working to hold man down, to keep uh, human beings in darkness, to keep them blinded from the truth. And all this time, God was seeking to love them and to reach them and to win them. Eventually, through Moses, He revealed His character in the law. And He explained the nature of sin by revealing His own personality and His own uh, moral uh, character as He gave laws that were consistent with His person, knowing that they couldn't keep them. But they needed to understand the nature of sin before they could understand the desperate need they had for the Redeemer, the the Savior that would come. And so time went along and one after another, uh, they rebelled and they came back and they rebelled again and they came back until the Scripture says in the fullness of time, God sent His Son born of a woman, born to redeem human beings. Friends, there are amazing parallels in the coming and in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross that rectify and restore what was lost in Adam. He was the last Adam, but the second man And as the second man, he faced the same trials that Adam faced. He was tempted in the same ways. As the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness, Satan met him there to bring him down. After 40 days of fasting, and Jesus became desperately hungry. Satan suggested that he take the stones and turn them into bread because after all, he had the power to do that. Satisfy your needs apart from your father. Do it yourself. It was the same trial. It was good to eat. He took him to the top of the pinnacle of the temple and he suggested that he cast himself off and even quoted scripture to him that the angels would be given charge over him lest he dash his foot against the stone and surely as he fluttered to the earth uh, he would be saved and land softly and he could instantly become the most popular person in Jerusalem and, and among the Jews. Here's your opportunity. And again, Jesus met the temptation with you shall not tempt the Lord your God. I'm not going to put myself in that position and take the easy way out. 
And then Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Everything on the planet. He caused to come before his eyes like a panorama. And he says, if you'll simply bow down to me, I'll give you all of this. You don't have to go uh, to a cross. You don't have to earn this. You don't have to buy this. You can have it. I'll give it to you. All you have to do is just kneel in front of me and I'll let you have it all. And there was the temptation of the uh, lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and on the temple the boastful pride of life. Jesus resisted all of them. Every day, this was but a sample, every day Jesus faced temptation. Every day Satan sought to defeat him. Every day he got up and had to deal with the devil. Every day, in dependence upon his father, he resisted and won the battle. So that in that final time, as he came uh, ultimately in the conspiracy of the Jewish leadership uh, to be handed over to the Romans for cru- crucifixion, Jesus had appeared at that moment without ever having once sinned. He was the champion, the second man, the last Adam. And as they nailed him to the cross and as they spilled his blood, the one thing Satan never wanted was for the atonement to be made that would destroy his power. In fact, the scripture says that as he was buried and it came to the day of the resurrection, it doesn't say this exactly, but it implies it, that Satan and every wicked angel he could muster had gathered over that tomb to lock him in the ground. But he triumphed over them, making a public display of them as he rose triumphantly out of the tomb. Because you see, the power of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But Jesus kept the law perfectly, died for our sin, and as a consequence, defeated death. And on that cross, when they came to the end of the day and the Jewish leaders had said, Go break their legs so they'll die quickly. We don't want them hanging up there on the uh, Sabbath day. And the Roman soldiers went to do as they were ordered. And they came to Jesus and noted that he had already died. Because if you recall, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. No one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down. And I have the power to take it up again. But in order to make sure, they thrust a spear into his side. And out came blood and water. It was proof that um, post-mortem lividity had begun to set in. But I think back to that time when God caused the deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he took some stuff from his side and he made a woman. 
and called her name Eve and woke Adam up and said, here is your bride. And on the cross as Jesus spilled his blood and the water flowed from his open side, God took that stuff and made another woman. He made a church, the bride of Christ. And he started a family that to this day lasts. And one day Jesus will come back, the bridegroom, the Lamb of God, and the bride. And there will be a marriage supper and a great time of celebration as our champion leads in victory and wins the day for us. Oh, I could spend hours. <laughs> I lay awake last night thinking of this epic story and all the parallels and I was just overwhelmed with the glory and fascination of a God who designed such a marvelous plan to recover what was lost through our champion. Secondly, the person whose sins will die, the scripture says, and the life is in the blood. God is a God of truth and he cannot break his word. When he said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Even though their bodies did not drop to the ground in that moment, they died. They died spiritually that moment. It only was a matter of time before the corruption ate away at their soul and ultimately destroyed their body. It was only a matter of time before they physically returned to the ground. The soul that sins will die. And that is the judgment and the promise of God. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. The sharp pang of death is caused by sin. And the power of sin is derived from the law which has been broken. God revealed Himself in the law, and we've done nothing since we heard of it but break it. The Bible tells us that before the law, sin existed, but it was not a specific transgression because uh, we didn't understand exactly what we were violating. But once God wrote it down, we just kept living like we were living. And we still do. People lie, they cheat, they steal, uh, they break their covenants, they commit adultery, they, they murder, they hate, they carry on this uh, sordid lifestyle which ultimately betrays the fact that they are broken. We are broken. And just in case we look at those Ten Commandments and say, well, they don't apply to me because I haven't done any of those awful things. Oh, maybe a little white lie, but you know, those are, the, those are meant not to hurt people's feelings. And, and so that doesn't really count. My dad was a great man of integrity and he was known for his truthfulness. But if you ask him if he liked a piece of pie that he couldn't stand, he would tell you he did if you made it. 
because as he explained later, that's a little white lie. It's calculated to not hurt someone's feelings. Well, I'm not sure how you categorize that, but it's not truth. <laughs> and so uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount kind of uh, elucidated that. He made it clear for us. He said, when, when the scripture says, do no murder, if you have hatred in your heart, that's the seed of murder. You're just as much a murderer lacking opportunity if you hold hatred in your heart. And so he went through all of them and explained that the, the heart is the root and, and the basis of our sin and iniquity. And the soul that sins will die. God is a holy God who dwells in unapproachable light. He, he is a, a consuming fire whose wrath is kindled against the evil enemy of sin. A God whose character requires punishment for sin. He cannot merely forgive without satisfying the penalty. Or there would be no peace, no salvation, and no heaven. I want you to imagine something with me a moment. And I think it will become starkly clear to you what I'm saying. Suppose a fellow comes in and holds up a convenience store. And he has a gun and he shoots the clerk. A young mother of two children. Leaves her husband, a widower, and the children without a mother and steals the cash out of the drawer and makes his escape. And let's say that he gets caught. And when he's caught, this is what he says. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. She wouldn't give me the money fast enough. Please forgive me. Someone has a problem with alcohol and they drink vastly too much on too many occasions and they get in their car to drive home knowing they shouldn't be driving. And one night the inevitable occurs as they cross the middle line and hit another vehicle head on and cause the death of an entire family. And when the police come to the scene Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Or the white-collar criminal who robs thousands of people from their retirement in his Ponzi scheme. And when he's caught, he says, I hope all you people can overlook this. I wasn't really trying to hurt you. I just kind of wanted to make some money the easy way. Could you forgive me? What kind of world would we have? Maybe I should rephrase that. What kind of world do we have? <laughs> where the consequence of sin is never required. I started reading a book by the sheriff of Milwaukee County and in chapter 4 
I haven't read the chapter yet, but it begins with uh, his um, administrative assistant uh, announcing that he is being sued. And he's being sued by a person who is in the county jail. They find their accommodations unsatisfactory. And, and he is incredulous. And his point is, jail is not supposed to be nice. What's wrong with these people? What kind of world is it where a simple apology removes all consequence? What kind of place would we have if that were the case? Have you ever had someone hurt you and you catch them, so to speak, with their hand in the cookie jar and then they just simply say, well, gee, I didn't mean to. Won't you just forgive me and let's go back to normal? Can you just go back to normal? <laughs> I hate to tell you, but I can't. It's not that I'm not willing to forgive. But I can't go back to normal until there has been some substance, some meat, some demonstration to the repentance. And if God just simply forgave sin willy-nilly, just kind of winked at it, just said, well, I know you didn't mean it. I, I get that. I, I tell you what, I'll give you a pass. Come on in, come on in and spend eternity with me. Do you know what heaven would be like? It'd be like now. It'd be this sordid mess now. Somebody would figure out how to get guns in heaven. Somebody would figure out how to get money in heaven. They'd figure out how to steal it. And how to kill one another. It would not be any different than it is now. There has to be a conviction. There has to be a repentance. There has to be a payment. There has to be a price. It has to be costly. As the sheriff said, jail is not meant to be nice. Jail has one objective, whether you agree with it or not. Its goal is to fix a person's brain so that they don't do that stuff again. And it doesn't do a very good job of it, I must admit. God had a little different plan. But it's supposed to make you so miserable that you never want to go there again if you ever get out. You never want to go back. It's supposed to change you. It's designed to do that. It doesn't change most people. They just become more sophisticated criminals, and that's our fault. But anyway, it's easy to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> but John the Baptist said to those Pharisees, you bring me fruit in keeping with your repentance. And John wrote to the church at Ephesus and said, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Friend, confession, as you've heard me say many times, means uh, to say the same thing as. It comes from two uh, Greek words, homo and logos. Homo logao. It means that the word I speak is the same word that God speaks. When I look at my sin and God looks at my sin, we are in agreement. No excuses. No, I didn't mean it. No pattering about trying to come up with a reason why I did what I did. Boldly agreeing with God that I am guilty and that I deserve His wrath. That's where I stand but for Jesus. And that is the sin that God is faithful and just to forgive. There has to be payment. There has to be death. The soul that sins will die. It's the Word of God. He cannot break it. Every person who sins, and that's every person, must Pay the price of the sin which is death. A holy God cannot bear the sight of them in His presence. However much He loves them, on the one hand, loves us on the one hand, He cannot bear to look upon our sin. There has to be some kind of cleansing. There has to be some kind of forgiveness. And if you read that passage in Romans 3, 23-26, The scripture makes it very plain that our Lord Jesus Christ took our sin upon him. That whereas by one man sin entered the world and and death came through sin, that happens to be Romans 5. uh, So through one man righteousness has come and through that righteousness life eternal. That Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to be forgiven. Because this one, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and following, this one who knew no sin, and that's the requirement. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. It had to be a perfect lamb. It had to be one who had no blemish, no spot, no sin in his life. This one went to the cross. And He shed His blood and He poured out His life for me. That my sin could be cleansed and covered. I deserve to die, but He took my place. He accepted my punishment. Only our Lord Jesus and God Almighty and the Holy Spirit will know what it cost that day as God turned away from the sight of Jesus who had gathered all the sin of the world to His person. He who knew no sin became sin. Not just took on sins, He became sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness 
of God in him. He paid my price. He took my punishment. He accepted my penalty. The heart of God was satisfied. The one who said, the soul that sins must die. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that God did this in order that he might be righteous, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You see, God could not compromise his character. He had to have payment for sin, but Jesus became the payment. Therefore, the righteous requirements of the law were satisfied in Jesus and he died on my behalf so that through him, God could keep his word. He could remain holy. He could exact the penalty and the punishment which he poured upon Jesus Christ and I could go free if I would put my faith and trust in him. For my salvation. And so he bore my penalty. That I could be restored. In his righteousness. I won't spend a lot of time on the third point. But I just want to say for those of you that may be confused about this. And there's a lot going on out there among churches and people and theologians today that is sad to me. What is the scope of the atonement? For whom did Christ die? Was it just for a few? Was it only for some special ones? If you read the scripture, you find a very different story. In 1 Timothy 2, 3-6, the scripture says very plainly that God desires everyone to be saved, to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. Everyone. That's God's heart's desire. That's God through the Holy Spirit by divine inspiration revealing his own heart. He wants everyone to be saved. Now, everyone is not going to be saved. Jesus himself said, wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many are on that route. But narrow is the gate and straight is the way that leads to eternal life, and only a few find it. But that does not change God's desire. There is a requisite that is laid upon us to believe the gospel and to trust him. And so, first of all, God wants everyone to be saved. The Holy Spirit is sent to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him have eternal life. Jesus said that. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees me and believes in me will have, every, will have eternal life. We need to recognize that hell was not made for human beings. It was made for the devil and his fallen angels. And according to Ezekiel, God takes 
no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. There are some people who are so warped in their thinking that they somehow feel like God will get glory out of punishing wicked people. God's holiness is always glorified. But he takes no joy in the punishment of the wicked. There is no secret motivation of delight in the heart of God that his holiness and his wrath is somehow being magnified by his judgment. The atonement is in no way limited. It is available to anyone in the world who hears the good news message and turns to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. The scope of the atonement is as broad as the people of the earth. To all who hear the message and turn and believe, there is the opportunity of salvation. The scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Let me just conclude by getting you to think of this with me. I am the one who put Jesus on the cross. God loved me. He wanted me to spend eternity with him. He could not bear to look at my sin. The only way that it would be possible for me to live eternally in his presence is if someone paid the price so that I could go free. And my Lord Jesus took my sin to the cross. And he took yours. Everyone under the sound of my voice, Christ Jesus has paid the price for your sin. He shed his blood, the sacrifice of death, so that you could live. He gave himself that we might have life in him. To the Jews, he's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, this is utter foolishness. But to those who are the called, who have heard the voice of the Holy Spirit, have sensed the conviction of their sin and turned to him in faith, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It was love, love for me, that caused the Father to send his Son. It was love that compelled Jesus to go to the cross. We cannot in any way minimize the atonement, the blood atonement that covers our sin. It's the price we deserved to pay, but he took it in my place. 
Does that mean that I can just say, I'm sorry. Take me to heaven. No, bring some fruit in keeping with your repentance. Friends, to repent means to go in the other direction. It means to do an about face and go the other way. Repentance from my heart means I have seen my sin in the cross of Christ. And it has broken my heart. And I never want to live that way again. I want to love the Lord. I want to follow Him. I want to commit to Him. The word believe does not mean to give intellectual assent. The scripture says even the demons believe with their brain, they have one, their mind, but they're not saved. They tremble because they know it's true and they don't want any part of it. No, belief means to commit yourself to him totally. And put all of your trust in Him. That from this day forward, you have seen your sin. It has broken your heart. You have turned away from it. And you have embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Master. And you will follow Him all the days of your life. You've done an about face. You're not your own God. He is your God. You're serving Him. You're living for Him. You're loving Him. We love Him because He first loved us. Friends, have you by faith received the atonement that has been provided for you in Jesus Christ? Have you allowed Him to cleanse you with His blood? To pay the price for your sin? Have you turned from your own way and turned to Him? Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world. That was not my purpose. God so loved the world that He sent me His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in me should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I've come to give you life, that the world could be saved through me. Do you know the love of God in those terms? And have you turned to Him in full faith? Lord Jesus, thank you for going to the cross for me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me, for taking my place that I could live forever with you. Thank you for being my champion. Thank you for bringing me back. 
Thank you for bringing light into this dark soul. I praise your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.